open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And we're going to just look at verses 9 through 11 tonight. Verses 9 through 11, Revelation chapter 1. The first eight verses begin to set up for us where the Apostle John is going to see visions and he's going to write down for us the things that he has seen. And verses 9 through 11 then is John beginning to describe his commission that was given to him. And he makes some notable points as he begins to describe why he is writing these things down. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was in the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And you'll have to come back next week, Sunday night, Lord willing, you'll see what he turns around and he gets his eyes on quite an amazing scene. But John wants to just set up for us a couple of things. In verse 9, we're told where John is. We're told he's on the Isle of Patmos. And a lot of question about, well, what is he doing there? Why is he on this island? Now, there's not a lot of evidence besides just a couple of writers who stay that this island was used as a place of exile and so it is likely that that's the reason why and what is behind John's words to say I'm there for the testimony of God I'm there it seems for preaching this word of God that's why I am in this place and so there would have been some freedom there on that island but John writes not for sympathy to his audience to say woe is me I'm on this island because I was doing God's deeds and now here I am stuck on this island. Notice that John, when he begins this, he doesn't uh, use authority and say, now here's what happened. I'm an apostle and you need to listen to me and do what I say. And so here's the revelation that you need to follow. Instead, he goes, I'm a brother with you. I'm a fellow brother. I'm a fellow sharer in the tribulation. I'm sharing with you in the suffering that you are enduring. And I'm sharing with you in the kingdom of God. And I'm sharing with you in patient endurance. And so rather than beginning this letter and and trying to establish himself and say, here I am the apostle, and interesting that John does that, it seems, in all of his letters, calls himself the elder in one of his epistles, here to say, you know fellow brother, fellow sufferer, fellow participant in God's kingdom, fellow person who is enduring the difficulties. And so there would be a a tone of compassion and really I think a sense of comfort as he writes this letter and that's what a lot of Revelation is intended to be about is a message of comfort to the audience. And here is John saying, I know what you're going through. Look at where I am. Look at what I am enduring also. I'm on the island of Patmos for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I am here also suffering just as you are suffering. But don't just focus on the suffering. He already begins by saying, I'm a partaker in the kingdom. 
we spent a little bit of time in that concept in our last couple of studies, and especially in our Wednesday night class. And there in verses 4 through 8, what is John emphasizing in this description about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done is that He has all authority. He has all power. He has all might. He is sitting on the throne. He is the faithful witness who endures eternally. And He is reigning with might and power as He sits on that throne. And now John says, and guess what? We are fellow sharers in that kingdom. Christ is reigning on the throne and we're joined with Him in that power. And so do not look at your physical circumstances. Do not see your suffering and think that you've been rejected by God or that something has gone wrong or that you're on the outside with God. No, no. We're fellow brothers and we're sharers in this kingdom even though we go through suffering, even though we go through these tribulations. And so verse 9 then is really then a call of comfort. It's like, I'm there with you. I can identify with what you're going through, but see where you are with God. See that you're in God's kingdom and see the blessings that come from that. And the book of Revelation is going to lay out a number of the blessings that Christians have, a reason to endure difficulties and hardships because of the glory of the kingdom of God. Second thing is in verse 10. Two observations to make from verse 10 that are very important. The first one is, is that He is in the Spirit. And that seems like a curious phrase. What does it mean to be in the Spirit? But in the Old Testament, that is a phrase that is used to speak of being put into a visionary trance or vision state. Like in Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse 1, we read, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. Ezekiel 37 verse 1, that's the vision of the valley of dry bones. However, we know that Ezekiel is an exile in the middle of Babylon. He's not being transported literally to see the temple or to another valley somewhere. He is in a vision. And that is what John is describing for us now. He is saying, I am in the Spirit. The vision is beginning. And let me describe to you the vision that I saw, which reaffirms for us what we observed in those first three verses. Remember that these things are to be understood as signs and symbols unless the text demands otherwise. And here's a good reason why. Because John says, this is a vision. Uh, I am in the Spirit as these things are happening. These are not actual events. They are not really beasts and dragons walking around and doing these various things that we'll read about in the book. This is a vision. And we are supposed to see the imagery and grasp what is the meaning behind these signs and images. That's the first thing, that John is in vision. Second, isn't it interesting the day that this happened? A very curious time. This is not the day of the Lord. That's very important to observe. It's in the adjective setting that this is the Lord's day. What is going on here? What is the Lord's day? It shouldn't be too hard for us to work together why Sunday, the first day of the week, would be the Lord's Day. A number of reasons. One, that's when we read about the Christians were coming together to partake of the Lord's Supper, like in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. Two, that is the day that Jesus raised from the dead, as we see in 
Luke chapter 24 and verse 1, on the first day of the week, early in the morning, Jesus rises from the grave. And so it is on Sunday that Jesus stands there and is then raised. We also read that's when the disciples were always gathering. After Jesus' resurrection, we read in the Gospel of John in chapter 20 that the disciples are gathering together seven days after there. They're gathering together on the Lord's Day, on the Sunday. And even as an aside, probably by no accident, in Acts chapter 2, we read about the, quote, first sermon in preaching, the doors being opened to the kingdom of God and the forgiveness of sins being given. And what day did that fall on? Well, it was always to be 50 days after the Passover Sabbath, which would place it on the Lord's Day on a Sunday. And so you have all of these reasons why the Lord's Day is extremely important and extremely significant. And why it has always been understood as the day to come together to worship God, to remember our Lord's death in the memorial supper of the, of the bread and the fruit of the vine, that this is what was done in the very beginning and it is not an optional concept. This is a very special day. It was a day that John would call the Lord's Day. And it's easy to pass by that language, but understand what what John is saying. That day's a special day. That's the Lord's Day. And that interesting that he would note that here. If it was no big deal, then why say it at all? But he observes that this is the first day of the week. The end of verse 10 is also quite interesting. He hears behind him a loud voice like a trumpet. Even though John's going to describe for us what he sees in the next couple of verses, if we know our Old Testament well, we know who's talking. If you remember over in Exodus chapter 19, you have as all of Israel gathers before Mount Sinai, and the Ten Commandments are about to be spoken by God, and remember the mountain is shaking and it is full of smoke, and do you remember what else is happening? The sound of loud trumpets coming from somewhere. It's not the people. But the sound of trumpets begins to blare loudly as then the commandments are spoken by God. And very interesting that here as this is going on, we have this loud sound described like trumpets. It's the voice of the Lord that's going to be speaking in just a moment. We're going to see a picture of Jesus, our Lord, as He will then tell Him some things that He's going to be doing. But we, even before we get there, have no trouble knowing the divine is here. It is the divine that is speaking to John. And that is what He is going to turn and see. Finally, we notice in verse, verse 11 what He's supposed to do. Here's the naming of the seven churches. We, we touched on that earlier, just pointing out that these are seven actual churches. These are seven churches that existed in Asia. And it's probably useful to remind us that uh, when he speaks of Asia, that's not the same Asia that we're used to when we talk of Asia. We're talking about modern-day Turkey. That was a province under the Roman Empire at that time called Asia. We, by convenience, call it Asia Minor so that we don't confuse ourselves about where we are talking about. Those in that country of Turkey, those seven churches are there. And in the order that is given there would have been the natural path that you would have taken if you were to cycle 
or walk to those churches and travel to them. You would have gone around to all of those churches and here is where this letter was to go. And so these seven churches are named and and given from Ephesus all the way to Laodicea. And what we will see in our future studies, we get the opportunity given to us by God, we will see in Revelation 2 and in Revelation 3, directions and instructions as well as some of them receiving condemnation from Jesus Himself about the things that they're doing. And we'll learn a lot and have a lot to take away from what were these churches doing that was worthy of God's commending and what were they doing that was worthy of God's condemnation. And so that's what's going to happen here. Is first we are seeing John is going to say, be told, here is the vision of Jesus. Here is what I want you to see. The commission to write these things down. The letter then moves into chapters 2 and 3. Here's what the seven churches are doing and specific details about what is going on with those Christians. And we will read about the persecution and the suffering. We will read about how some of them have not been patiently enduring but instead have fallen away from the faith. And then chapter 4 will begin a glorious sight as we will be transported into the throne room of God and we will see then this vision begin to unfold and the difficulties of the book of Revelation begin and we will see what, what God is revealing for us in this message. So that's what those, those first three verses, verses 9 through 11, accomplish for us. Is John setting up, here's where I am, and here's what I'm doing, a word of comfort to the Christians. I'm writing these letters, this letter to you, an important revelation because we're fellow brothers in the kingdom of God and fellow sharers in our suffering together for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. One of the things I hope you will take away as you go through this week and certainly in the days ahead as we study is a, a confident encouragement, a, a building up that says even when people cause us difficulties, cause us to suffer for righteousness' sake, when we may be dismayed by attempting to do the word of God, the will of God and accomplishing what He's called for us to do in either teaching the lost, doing the right thing, standing up for what is right, upholding justice. And it doesn't go well for us many times when we do that. John says, you know, it didn't go well for me either. And the Christians in the book of Revelation are saying, you know, it didn't go well for us either. In fact, we'll see in chapter 6 them crying out from under the altar, the slain Christians who died for this very cause of Christ. Do not be surprised if we have to suffer for His name. Do not be surprised if we are maligned and mistreated for trying to do what is right, for standing up against wickedness and doing good. I pray that you will have the strength this week to stand for what is right, to do what is good, to stand in the face of evil, to not go along with those who would push us into compromising our virtues and morals and values that God has given to us, but that we will stand for the truth, we will stand for what's right. We're going to sing a song now in just a moment, and we are pleading with you in this song to come to the Lord, to serve Him with all of your heart, to see that He is enthroned, that He is in charge, and that He's calling for us to serve Him. And so many of our songs were saying that, that look at what God has done, look at how great He is. He has died for your sins, praying and hoping and pleading with you to turn away from your sins, to give you the opportunity 
to repent of your sins, to turn away from the lifestyle that does just worthless and leads to ruin and destruction, but to turn to Him for eternal life and for the forgiveness of your sins. And you can do that tonight. You can come forward and receive that now while we stand and while we sing.